Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Arenas. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, October 23rd. On today's show, we'll talk about Elon Musk's other, other project. Not the space travel, not the electric cars, but the boring company which I will admit is a somewhat clever name for a company that bores holes in the ground. The latest is that the Boring Company is working on a tunneling project in Los Angeles that would bring a new type of transportation to an area plagued by traffic. Musk announced over the weekend that the first tunnel will be open to the public later this year. We'll talk to our Slate colleague Henry Gerbar about that. And we'll talk about the never-ending battle to rid Facebook of disinformation, particularly of the kind that can disenfranchise or confuse or stoke hatred in voters. Last Friday, the Department of Justice unsealed a criminal complaint against a Russian woman accused of running an operation on behalf of the Kremlin-connected Internet Research Agency that had been working to shove Americans further to the brink of the country's deeply polarized political divisions and foil our upcoming midterm elections. Then we'll be joined by Kate Black. She's the global privacy officer and senior counsel at 23andMe, the genetic testing company. Sites like 23andMe and Ancestry.com have been in the spotlight lately for a couple reasons. Most recently, after Senator Elizabeth Warren made public the results of her own DNA test in a video last week. We also talked about them earlier this year when the capture of the Golden State Killer was aided by a genealogy website. We'll ask Black about how companies like 23andMe protect your DNA data, who really owns it, And if law enforcement comes asking for it, what does the company say? And lastly, as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the Internet this week. All right. First, we're going to talk about news that Elon Musk's boring company is planning to open its first tunnel in December. That's pretty soon. To help us dig into this, we're joined by our colleague Henry Grabar, a staff writer for Slate who focuses on architecture, transportation and cities. Welcome to the show, Henry. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. So we know that they're building a tunnel. They've been working on it for a while. We know they're being pretty secretive about it. And I guess there's going to be some kind of pods down there under Los Angeles that whisk people around. Is that the basic gist of it? They're like car-sized roller skates, is my understanding. That's the gist of it. Some would say they bear a passing resemblance to a subway car. (laughs) I read them as as Musk responding to the criticism that was levied at him because When he first proposed these, they were supposed to be to whisk cars underground so they could avoid the traffic. Um, And he got a lot of criticism from people saying, well, you're not going to solve the traffic problem in Los Angeles by building more roads that are 500 feet underground or whatever. So he decided to shift towards a more transit-focused approach um, closer to what the Hyperloop does, uh, which is to say just putting a bunch of people in one one of these skate vehicles and then shooting it underground um, from one stop to the next. 
Right, similar to what a subway does. He's now actually making a lot of headway with this in Los Angeles. They announced recently that they're they're building a, a line in Los Angeles due December, right? Well, so is he making a lot of headway? I know that I don't know. I, I know that he <laughs> I know that he says that this is going to be he, so so the background here is he's he's talked a lot about his various plans for tunnel building. He says he's going to build an express train to uh, O'Hare Airport in Chicago. He says he's going to build um, a connection to Dodger Stadium, which we can talk about in a minute. But for now, the tunnel that he's been building is one that runs uh, from underneath the SpaceX headquarters in L.A., to basically a random house uh, a mile and change away. Irma's house. Or Irma's house, so-called Irma's house. So the LA Times has a story about how um, the Boring Company basically bought this house that they're going to use to extract a tunnel boring machine so that it, it gets to the end of the tunnel and they have a way to get it out of the ground. So they've done about uh, a mile and change. And as far as tunnel boring goes, that's not actually very impressive. Like... When I visited a construction site in Paris where the line 13 of the Paris metro is being extended into the suburbs, I saw a tunnel machine digging at about 40 feet a day. And this was under the city of Paris, you know, like the densest, most complicated uh, underground environment you can imagine. And they were doing 40 feet a day, which means that you could do a mile in about 130, 140 days. So you could presumably do about three miles a year, give or take. Um, and he's been working on this for more than a year, and he's got a little over a mile. So in terms of reinventing the art of tunneling, uh, it's not clear to me what he's accomplished that's so special. Can you see a purpose for having these little pods that people can walk into or bike into uh, and then, then sink down underground and link up to a network that might be different from a, a traditional subway system? No, no, I can't. <laughs> Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Let's look at the Dodger Stadium plan. Musk wants to build a, basically a three and a half mile tunnel that would connect the Los Angeles subway system to Dodger Stadium, famously car dependent stadium surrounded by an ocean of parking lots. Now, let's say that each of these vehicles holds eight to 16 people, as Musk has uh, specified, and he wants to transport, let's say, even if you ran one once a minute, what would that be? Maybe 600, maybe 1,200. Maybe if you put 20 people in them, you could be getting towards a couple thousand people that you'd be getting to a baseball game in a stadium that fits 56,000 people. And how much are you charging those people? Let's say you're charging them $2 each and you're taking, you know, 1,500 people. You're looking at 80 home games a year. You're not looking at making more than a quarter million dollars a year off this investment of a three and a half mile tunnel. All right, so not the cure-all to our urban transportation woes, but maybe they'll figure something useful out. I don't know, I sort of have this like, even though Elon Musk has been really weird lately, I sort of have this this built-in faith from covering him for a long time that there's eventually a point to what he's doing, but it's hard to see that point just yet. Henry Grabar, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. We're gonna move on to a familiar subject to listeners of this show. April, you've been following Facebook and their fight against disinformation. Last week, the company let reporters into their war room in Menlo Park. This is their little headquarters where they have people from different sections of the company working together to combat misinformation in not only in the U.S. elections, but in other elections around the world. 
This was the same week, however, that the DOJ filed a criminal complaint against a woman from St. Petersburg, Russia, working as the chief accountant of Project Lakta. That's a disinformation campaign targeting next month's U.S. midterm elections. This campaign was running fake accounts on Facebook throughout the summer 2018. The piece you wrote was titled, Facebook Will Never Run Out of Moles to Whack. So how is that war room effort going for Facebook? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, they unveiled the war room last Wednesday, and then on Friday, the Department of Justice did unseal this complaint that revealed that Russian trolls uh, and Project Lakta, as you mentioned, is a part of the Internet Research Agency, which is funded by the world's most interesting catering company, uh, a, a gentleman who's a businessman, a very rich businessman in Russia who uh, has deep ties to Putin. And uh, his catering company, I guess, funds the Internet Research Agency. And we learned that uh, that they have been uh, fueling disinformation efforts and having fake accounts and profiles across Twitter and Facebook uh, all the way up until the end of this summer, actually. And they've been spending about $1.7 a month on their disinformation efforts. It's not clear that that entire amount went to U.S., but they had been working on stoking divisions ahead of the midterms and uh, specifically focusing on the midterms. And so it shows that, you know, despite the 470-some accounts that Facebook removed last September and the, you know, over 3,000 accounts that that Twitter has now removed linked to the Internet Research Agency, they are still getting around, uh, you know, all of these efforts that the social media companies have put in. And these are pretty big efforts. I mean, Facebook has repeatedly called its effort to clean up election security and uh, kind of the biggest shakeup at the company since, I quote, our shift from desktop to mobile phones. This is something that a few of their uh, kind of executives have said to the media in the past few weeks. So um, it's it's clear that uh, it's a big effort at Facebook, but it's not entirely working or it's not working quite yet. Yeah, there was a funny piece in Giz the tech blog Gizmodo that kind of rounded up all the different stories that appeared the morning after Facebook opened its war, war room to the media. And of course, Facebook said part of its goal was transparency. But as Gizmodo pointed out, Facebook didn't really share anything with anybody about what's actually happening in this war room, just brought reporters in on a tour to see a bunch of people in front of computers tapping away and then said, oh, don't look too close at their screens. Um, but that said, it, it is kind of funny that that Facebook, you know, this this private company based in California now is partly in charge of securing elections around the world. Um, they were also they've also been active with the Brazilian elections. Have you been following what was going on down there? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that Facebook is in charge of this, but I would also say that Facebook kind of created the platform that allowed for so much of this to happen. And, you know, one thing on the war room, I, I was invited. I didn't end up making it down to Silicon Valley that day on, on Wednesday. But they, they said, though, to reporters that they're looking for things like spikes in traffic and, and things that are going viral. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that we're, we're learning as we see more of the types of accounts that were working on uh, behalf of the or that were Russian linked accounts that were working to kind of stoke American political divisions is that they weren't necessarily trying to go viral. I mean, it's great maybe if they do. And, you know, some ended up in news reports. But a lot of these were kind of trying to create a level of noise. Right. Or a level of um, this kind 
kind of general tenor that things are are not well or that we should be angry about something uh, and kind of, you know, making other memes spread. So not every tweet, you know, got thousands of retweets. Not every account had a, a massive following. Uh, but but what when you have thousands of these accounts or, or hundreds or we don't know how many have been at work during the, the 2018 midterms um, and there are probably still many that are at work. Uh, it's not just about, you know, virality. Uh, it's about kind of creating this illusion of a groundswell of grassroots support or anger. I- I'm not sure how the well the, the war room is going to go. I have been keeping track of the Brazilian elections to get back to your question. We're just a few days away from the runoff vote, uh, which is scheduled October 28th. And there are far right candidate. Uh, and I'm going to mispronounce this. And I apologize deeply. Jar Bolsonaro is running against the left opponent, uh, Fernando Haddad. And in Brazil, elections. Uh, the, they actually last for a few weeks. Uh, the campaigns have been struggling really against a tidal wave of misinformation that's been spreading like wildfire on Facebook and Facebook-owned WhatsApp, where some 44 percent of brilliance go to get their political news. Um, and, you know, just Monday, Facebook said it removed 68 pages and 43 accounts that were associated with the Brazilian marketing group uh, for violating social media's spam policies. These groups uh, or the accounts that were removed uh, were said to to be in support of the far right presidential candidate. Uh, this is really kind of a drop in the bucket compared to some of the, you know, more than 800 accounts that Facebook purged for violating its spam policies that uh, were kind of based in the U.S. and were, were domestic accounts for us. And that happened earlier this year. So, uh, you know, it, things are... <laughs> I'm I'm not really sure how Facebook's election cleanup efforts are going, but, you know, we're certainly hearing that they're doing a lot more than they appeared to have been doing in the past. Maybe they just didn't share as much as they were doing in the past, or maybe they're, you know, more excited to share now because they've been under the heat for so long. But, you know, we'll we'll see what a mess things are, you know, in a in about 10 days or two weeks from now when uh when Americans hit the polls. Yeah. I mean, I guess at this point, at least nobody can say that Facebook isn't trying to clean up the mess it made. Now the question is, is it capable of cleaning up that mess? On that cheery note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with Kate Black, Global Privacy Officer and Senior Counsel at 23andMe. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Kate Black. She's the Global Privacy Officer and Senior Counsel at 23andMe. For those not familiar, 23andMe is the DNA testing company. It gives you a little kit, you spit into a test tube, drop it in the mail. Within a couple months, you get results on some of your genetic makeup, potentially your ancestry. Black's background is in international, federal, and state privacy laws, as well as healthcare regulations. And prior to joining 23andMe, 
Black worked for the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Did I get all that right, Kate? You sure did. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So you are the global privacy officer. So let's get right into the privacy questions. This is a really cool technology that allows you to find out about your genetic makeup. But what happens when you upload your data? Who owns that data? Do you still own it or does 23andMe own it? And and what do you mean uh, by whatever response you're about to give? <laughs> you always own your data. You do have to give us a license in order to process it, analyze your sample, and provide you your reports back. That allows us to populate all of those interesting features and tools in our website, but you do retain entire ownership rights over that. On top of our reports and immediate responses that you get back, any additional uses of your data or information uh, presentation or interpretation is entirely optional and up to the individual to choose whether or not they'd like to have their information processed for those purposes. When you say license, does that mean that I've, I can revoke that license from you guys and, and you can no longer have access to it? Well, analyzing the sample is irrevocable. So if you catch us before your sample has gone through the processing, then we are happy to halt that and kind of discard both your sample and any information we have about you. But if it's already been run through our genotyping platform, uh, the information is processed and can't be undone or reversed. So after that processing is run and you get your reports back, you can choose to delete your account at any time. But us, just like every other kind of laboratory testing or genetic testing site, has to retain a small subset of your information in order to meet our clinical quality standards and regulatory requirements. All right. So what is the process if, let's say, I want to use 23andMe, but I don't want my data shared with anybody in any form? Um, What's the process for me to opt out altogether? At a baseline, if you participate in our service, you have to be okay with sharing your information with our laboratory testing service provider, who is LabCorp. Other than that, you don't have to consent to share anything else. So you may be presented some choices during registration about whether or not you want to participate in our research program, whether you'd like your sample biobanked, and if you'd like to participate in other tools like DNA Relatives. All you have to do is simply press no, and your information will not be shared with any of those entities or other individuals. GlaxoSmithKline bought a $300 million stake in 23andMe. That deal was reportedly contingent on 23andMe sharing customers', customers anonymized data with GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, there are also data sharing deals with pharmaceuticals like Biogen, Pfizer, and Genentech. There are uh, P&G Beauty. Um, and then you also share data with academic institutions and nonprofits. So when you share that data, um, that's part of. The, I mean, that's part of the value for Twenty Three and Me. Is there value to for for me as a user of Twenty Three and Me to to allow my data to be shared in that way? And can I opt out of sharing that? Well. Taking a step back, um, what you're referring to is our research program. So participating in our research program is entirely voluntary. You can opt in or out at any time. But it is not the case that if you do opt in, your information would be sold or otherwise transferred. The GlaxoSmithKline GSK deal um, collaboration was really one to further and advance scientific discovery discovery around therapeutics and um pharmaceutical drugs. And so all of the analysis and all of the information um, will be kept and housed by 23andMe, and only the outcome or the statistical summaries could be shared with GSK. So you don't have to be worried about any of your individual level data being transferred and otherwise shared. That um, 
research program that I mentioned is entirely overseen by an external ethics review board that makes sure that our program and all of the data uses do comply with human subjects research requirements, including adhering to very specific privacy standards. So um, we make sure that all of our ethical standards are met and information is being protected according to those. What about when police make information requests for data? Do you guys get data requests from law enforcement? What's your policy on that? We do everything and anything we can to protect customer information if and when a law enforcement request is received by the company. We were the first genetics company to publish a transparency report in 2015 that we update on a quarterly basis. All told, we've received about five requests from law enforcement entities um, and have very successfully pushed back on those requests, and we have never uh, turned over information over to law enforcement. So um, we have taken a pretty hard-line approach to protecting customer information, and we'll continue to do that going forward. But then when customers volunteer their data, like to that uh, GED site that we've been reading about that helped aid in the finding the Golden State Killer, then that's available to the public or it's available to law enforcement in that case then, right? Data protection is a shared responsibility. Absolutely. We don't want to make decisions for our customers or prevent them from using data in whatever way is appropriate and makes sense for them and their families. So we do allow individuals to download their raw data at any time, really for a variety of purposes, anything they would like to do with their information, as it is information about themselves, um, and they do own it. Some of our customers choose to upload their data to other services or websites, including GEDmatch. And when they do that, we make sure we make it very clear on the download screen that they should review the privacy policies and the service terms of any additional website or feature they're planning on using. Because once it leaves our system, it's not subject to the same rigorous privacy and security standards that we've implemented. So we try to give users a really transparent um, kind of disclaimer to make sure that they're aware that there could be a risk if they upload their information elsewhere. And it's not just a risk to their information. It's a risk to, like, their third cousin that they've never met, too, right? Because one of the things with this data that's being made available and that, that uh, law enforcement are now using to to find um, criminals or, or to, to complete longstanding cases that have not been completed is that it's it's often not the person that uploaded their their DNA information to a website but rather a, a relative. Uh, how do you make people aware of that? And and, and what is 23andMe's thoughts on, on potential privacy violations of, of people who are adjacent to those who uh, are deciding to engage in these services? It's an absolutely important consideration to understand that the information you learn about yourself could also be information about your immediate family members or those within your your extended family. So we try to surface a number of different tools and features and articles throughout the 23andMe experience, really uh, outlining how to talk to your family members about this, how to take into consideration those kind of um, unknowns and how it may impact other family members and make sure that people are not only making informed decisions about their own data, but really look at that as a shared responsibility for those in their family as well. There's no way for, say, a relative who wants to check to see if any of their relatives have made their data available through 23andMe can then contest that they don't want to be connected to any sort of, you know, publicly available data that's somehow connected to them genetically. Well, so uh, 23andMe is a closed database. It's not open. You can't upload your information from other services. The DNA Relatives tool is entirely opt-in. So if they don't want to participate, they don't have to ever be matched against other uh, relatives or 
potential genetic matches. Whether or not those same um, requirements apply to other services, I, I really can't say. But again, really encourage people to take a really discerning look to review their rights and privileges anytime they're moving their sensitive information. So we recently had a case where a politician, Elizabeth Warren, uh, voluntarily took uh, a DNA test and then released the results partly to combat claims from from Donald Trump that she wasn't who she claimed to be. There was some blowback over that um, because uh, people felt that, you know, that, that the DNA test doesn't really tell you much about whether you're Native American or not. Um, but there were also some people who said this sets a worrying precedent. Um, if if politicians are going to be expected going forward to share the results of DNA tests, do you foresee a future in which it it becomes common practice for for public figures, for politicians, to to take and share the results of DNA tests for for various reasons to prove they they are who they say they are or that sort of thing? Well, I mean, taking a step back, I think it's important to always remember that your genetics and your DNA is really one part of your broader identity and story. So um, while they can tell you important bits of information and and really insightful um, background about who you are and kind of where you come from, that's always kind of a broader question of of how you interpret it, how you were raised, where where your life has taken you. So want to make sure that everyone understands that your genetics is is not the end all be all. It's really part of your story. Um, and to the extent that that's an important part of your story, you know, we really think that's great and a wonderful kind of progression of genetic testing technology. But it's really anyone's game to say whether or not um, and how that will be incorporated into public life more prominently. I certainly hope that everyone is thinking uh, very critically and very thoughtfully about how they're sharing their sensitive information. Um, and again, just going back to making the decision that's that makes sense for themselves and their family members. Now, I have a question about the potential for somebody to turn in someone else's spit or DNA or to uh, submit under a false name. How are you all at all verifying the authenticity of people who are submitting these things? And along the same lines, uh, what about the rights of kids? You know, we designed our spit test to be as privacy forward and protective as we possibly could. It actually requires a large amount of spit. You have to spit for about 30 minutes um, in order to fill the tube to the appropriate level. And part of the reason we did that is we didn't want somebody to uh, steal a swab or steal somebody's piece of hair and submit a test without them knowing it. You really have to make a kind of conscious decision to sit and contribute your sample once you do provide your sample, you go ahead and register your kit online. You do uh, need to use your real name and actual um, verifiable information, though we don't collect an ID from you or otherwise prove that you are the individual you say you are. The primary reason you have to use your real name is so that we can, on the back end, um, give you access if you lose access or administer your account if anything were to happen and you no longer can sign into that email address that you use to log in. So I could submit my spit under a different name then? I mean, in theory, you could. There's nothing okay. that stops you from the website. But again, if you were to kind of lose access to your email, we would then have no way to verify you and get you back into your account. So it's really just a question of what which risks you're willing to take and what makes right the most sense for you. Do you worry about the potential for a data breach? I mean, you must worry about this these days. We've got companies as big as Google and Facebook that have uh, either inadvertently exposed user data or they've been hacked uh, in various ways 
just this year. Um, that seems that that's one concern I would have. I think about uploading my my DNA test. Um, is, are there any safeguards against that um, in terms of how the data is stored? Or are you just relying on good cyber defenses to keep hackers out? Securing personal information is something core to the way we operate every single day. We're constantly um, upgrading our security and making sure that your information is appropriately protected. Some of the ways that we do that um, that provide the most kind of securing protective abilities are, A, through encrypting all of your sensitive data. So the information is in transit and at rest, always encrypted, and those keys are very highly protected. The information is also segregated so that your personal kind of email address registration information is always stored separately from your genetic information, which in turn is stored separately from any sort of survey or research information that you choose to provide. And the individuals that have access to one of those, so our customer care team, for example, who may help you um, navigate some account issues you're having, don't also have access to your genetic information or any of the other sensitive information. Those are two of a variety of things that we do um, to make sure your information is protected. We also use third parties. So um, we'll have individuals or organizations both pen test and verify that our practices are meeting the kind of the latest threat vectors and security protocols. Kate Black, thank you so much for joining us on If Then. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. All right. One last break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we saw on the web this week. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, only prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? This is a story that came out this afternoon from Kashmir Hill uh, in The Root. It's called The Wildly Unregulated Practice of Undercover Cops Friending People on Facebook. And it is about exactly what the title says. Uh, It turns out that police can friend you on Facebook and pretend to be someone else and follow you for years and then go after you if they find something. And that's exactly what happened in this one very, very troubling story that Kashmir tells. Uh, it turns out this this guy, uh, Terrence Everett, uh, had been monitored by police for two years on social media. And then finally, uh, his girlfriend or, or his his partner posted a photograph of a gun that she says that she owned uh, onto his uh, Instagram page. He deleted it, but it was too late. Police had already seen the image. Then they decided to throw a smoke bomb into his living room, uh, detain his pregnant girlfriend, and he went to prison for 15 years. And the police were alleging that, you know, she had bought this gun in order to give to him. They didn't have really a reason for monitoring him. He wasn't um, a suspect of a crime. Uh, They had just been monitoring him because he was being monitored by them because they were suspicious of him, perhaps because of other social media activity that that he 
he had done. But, you know, this is something I've I've heard of over the years of police officers just simply like posing as as women and then um, sitting there watching for them to mess up or to do something suspicious and then arresting them. Um, I remember during Black Lives Matter protests, uh, people were posting things to Facebook like, you know, probably out of out of fear or panic. That's like, you know, we have to get the cops before they get us, you know, not. And and then that, you know, leading to questioning or arrest from police um, and messages like that. So I'm always interested in the relationship between um, how speaking in real time and, and just communicating <laughs> with with folks thinking out loud as, as social media begs us to do. And and that turning into a scenario where where people can be arrested. Yeah, now I'm wondering which of my Facebook friends might be narcs. Maybe there are people I even knew a long time ago, but now they're in law enforcement. Who knows? So that is a good reminder to be careful of what you say on social media and who you friend. Thanks for sharing, April. Yeah. Well, what could you not close this week? My tab this week is by one of my favorite tech writers, and I think you might have flagged this for me, April. Uh, it was by Natasha Tiku at Wired. The headline is An Alternative History of Silicon Valley Disruption. And the story combines reviews of three different books, uh, one by Lewis Hyman, one by Mariana Mazzucato, and one by Anand Girardas. And in this review, Tiku takes stock of where the this latest wave of disruption has gotten us. You know, we were told that these Silicon Valley tech companies were disrupting industries, that they were... Uh, bringing us the future. She looks at it from a different perspective based on these three books and says, quote, it is only now a decade after the financial crisis that the American public seems to appreciate that what we thought was disruption worked more like extraction of our data, our attention, our time, our creativity, our content, our DNA, our homes, our cities, our relationships. The tech visionaries' predictions did not usher us into the future, but rather a future where they are kings. So it's a good read and a good step back uh, at, a, at an interesting time in Silicon Valley's history. Okay, that does it for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser and Will is at Will Arimus. Thanks again to our guest, Kate Black. You can follow her on Twitter at Genomic Privacy. Thanks also to Henry Grabar. You can find his work on Slate.com. And he's on Twitter at Henry Grabar. That's Henry, G-R-A-B-A-R. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Cody Hamilton for engineering here in Berkeley, California. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week.